As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome back to Allocation Disorder, first episode of 2021. I am Sam Stasekul, joined as always by Paul Tenorio. Coming back from a, you know, a little break over the holidays. Um, you know, world is still a crazy place, who would have guessed? Um, but we are both feeling a little bit rested and relaxed and ready to talk about Major League Soccer. The news does not stop. Paul, how are you doing, man? You enjoy the, you enjoy the holidays? I'm good, man. I, I took your lead. I deleted Twitter from my phone uh, for two weeks. I oh. I only got sucked into one tweet, anyways. That was that was sent to me by somebody, and I and forced me to pay attention to things I didn't want to pay attention to. Um, Get that person out of your life. But uh, other than they don't respect you. (laughs) (laughs) Other than that, man, it was good to get away. But it is good to be back here talking MLS with you and, you know, hopefully setting up a year where allocation disorder can actually go into some of the allocation disordery things that we like to talk about. Wasn't a ton of roster stuff last year, Sam, was there? But there there might be this year. I'm a global health and labor negotiation reporter i don't know what <laughs> soccer is okay so i don't know what you're talking about this is uh, 2020 was a prime year for allocation disorder and you know what paul we're picking up right where we left off so we're going to talk about a lot of stuff here on this episode but we're going to begin with labor negotiations in the cba and kind of peel back the curtain a little bit on that talk about greg vanny to the la galaxy long rumored finally official diego alonzo um, you know, we had a little bit of a saga on our on our end with that one, but he has officially been or officially parted ways, I believe. He's he's been fired by Inter Miami. Um some other moves, Mark McKenzie, official transfer to Gank in Belgium. Uh and then, you know, some other free agent trade uh roster maneuvering around MLS that we'll get into at the end of the show. So quite a bit to get through, but like I said, picking up right where we left off with labor talks um over the christmas holiday mls informed the the mls players association that it would invoke the force majeure clause um basically saying 2021 isn't going to be economically what we thought it would be because of the pandemic uh so we have the right to go back and invoke this clause and get back at the table and renegotiate a cba uh earlier this week they presented their first offer as to what that renegotiated deal or modified deal might look like. Uh, it was interesting, Paul. I think it, it, it was different than what I was expecting, um, both in in tone and substance. Um, but I think it was also really shrewd um, in many ways. And it's going to be really interesting to see how the union responds to it, which I think will probably be happening next week in the coming days. Um, So we'll see how all of that plays out. They're currently in the midst of a 30-day window to kind of modify this thing. Um, At the end of that 30-day window, the CBA can be terminated and there could be a work stoppage. Um, Of course, we have no idea when the season's supposed to start. So, you know, (laughs) that would affect any work stoppage too. A lot of moving parts. But Paul, do you want to explain to our dear listeners what exactly the proposal entailed from MLS? 
Yeah, well, MLS proposed to extend the CBA by two years. And as you pointed out, Sam, I thought it was a really smart and shrewd offer by league owners because what they did was they took what the players said publicly, which is that they didn't want pay cuts and didn't think pay cuts would be fair considering the health risks that they were taking on by playing, the sacrifices they made by leaving their families for the Canadian players or players on Canadian teams for for months at a time. Um, And they said, okay, we won't ask you to cut your pay, but we will ask you to extend the collective bargaining agreement for two years. And that is not an insignificant ask uh, for many reasons. Um, If you listen to the league, it's uh, $100 to $110 million in savings over the life of the seven-year deal. But you also have to account for a number of other things, and that includes you know, the potential then for the league to sync up the deal with their media rights deal, which will be negotiated after 2022, which would be a a major loss for the players not to be able to negotiate off of that increase in revenue uh, for for an extended three years. Um, They would push the deal back to after uh, the 2026 World Cup and not just after the 2026 World Cup, but a full year and a and a half essentially after the World Cup. So the league wouldn't have to worry about a labor negotiation in the months after a World Cup uh, when they are able to seize on that momentum. So um, that would be those would be two major areas where where the players would be losing some significant leverage, um, you know, as well as the, the losses that would occur in in decreases in in the increases in salary and bonuses that that happen year over year. De- so, decreases in the increases. Yeah. So <laughs> when you talk about ownership losing revenue, um, this would essentially be the players losing um, percentage increases year over year. Um, and, and, and partly because they're pushing them back, sure. But that means that they're getting less every single year of this CBA than they would have been getting if they agree, if, if they do end up agreeing to this deal. So, um, but, you know, Sam, to your point, I thought it was re- presented really well by the league and made to seem like a very reasonable offer. Yeah. And and like to just kind of simplify this a little bit, because we just threw a ton of information at you that is a little bit hard to follow, even for people like us who live and breathe this stuff most every day. Um Essentially, Paul, you mentioned the the hundred to one hundred and ten million over the life of the of the deal, and you mentioned this to me earlier. But just kind of doing some back of the envelope math, you know, looking at the number of teams in MLS, the number of years, um, you you divide those savings. You're only talking about a little more than five hundred grand in savings per year per team. So it's not like this is a massive, massive projected savings. For MLS, I think what you, you, you mentioned it, right? You gain in the leverage um, and you gain in kind of locking in, fixing costs for two extra years on top of what you already have. Um, so I think that's going to be really interesting. I think those are those are real losses for the players, right? And, and they, don't, they don't have to take this. I'm sure they won't. It's the first offer, right? There's going to be a negotiation. Um, but to me, this is this all comes down to like the owners have put them in a really interesting spot because if you're the average Joe MLS player, you know, taking home 150 grand a year, um, and you're looking at your career, you're 27 years old, you're thinking to yourself, I'm not going to be in this league in 2026, right? I'm going to take my money now, uh, take that short term security of no pay cuts in 2021. Um, and I'm going to ride this thing out and the people who come after me can deal with it. That's, a that's not an irrational point of view to take. Um, so they put them in a really interesting spot and I think it's going to be very curious to see what the players priorities are and how many of them are lined up with the long-term kind of vision and growth, um, and benefits for the player pool and how many of them just want to have that short-term security. Um, and just given the international nature of the league, uh, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if, if it breaks, uh, more towards the short term. And I don't think anyone would blame that. I if, think it's, if, if that's, if that's what happens. And Sam, I think it's more than just the international nature of the league. I think it's also partly the nature of professional sports, right? A lot of the players in this league, um, you know, aren't going to have careers that go through 2024, 2025, right? I mean, that, 
the realistically the number of professionals that make it to five years of 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 play in MLS is is a smaller percentage. And you can actually see that small percentage if you look at free agency and the restrictions that are put in there, right? The players who come up uh, out of their contract with the requisite age requirements and, and experience requirements. So, um, you know, that that's what you're fighting against. And if you're the, if you're the union of, of selling the, um, the importance of those long-term gains. And I think, you know, we should also point out, we, you know, when you talk about CBA negotiations, we just went through, the, you know, this is the third one of the last year. But if you look at the first one, the original negotiation in 2020, um, you look at the gains that were made, uh, not just percentage wise in the increase in salary and bonuses, um, but in the gains in free agency and in um, revenue share and all of those those other areas where the players were able to um, push their benefits. And that's what you'd be delaying as well. And that's really important for for the player pool is to have these moments to go into CBA negotiations and to bargain for um, better free agency and to Significant bargain. leaps. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So you'd be delaying that by essentially three years from what the original terms of this deal were. Because remember, the CBA was already pushed back by one year in the, the negotiation before MLS is back. So um, – I think one easy way to say this, Sam, when we talk about evaluating this offer from the league is there is zero chance, zero chance the players would have signed a CBA agreement that extended through 2027 if that was the negotiation back in last January and February. So it would be a significant uh, gain by the owners to be able to extend the life of this CBA that far out into the future. And and yep. realistically, I think that 100 to $110 million figure is the probably the least important part of this negotiation when it comes to what those those extra two years would, would mean and would be for uh, for the players and for the owners. Yeah, I have a question for you. And, and at the risk of, of maybe uh, oversimplifying things a little bit here. But, you know, the whole reason for a force majeure clause, in theory, is to basically say, okay, if an act of God, a.k.a. a pandemic, occurs and forces huge economic losses, um, then we can go back to the table and renegotiate. I don't think anyone's going to argue that the pandemic isn't causing significant economic losses uh, for MLS or the teams. You might argue about the degree, but you're not going to argue that, that it's hurting um, but with that being said, when you talk about, you know, saving 550000 per team per year, doesn't that take the teeth out of the argument that, hey, we need to come back to the table because we need to really, like, get through this year? Like, what do you think that – what do you make of that dynamic uh, from the from the ownership side of the argument? Yeah, it's kind of a um, – it's a dilemma for the owners, right? Because on one hand, they're saying – we need to invoke force majeure because we cannot afford to take the losses that we took in 2020 in 2021. Right. And then the other hand, they're saying, actually we can afford to take the losses on the front end, but we need the benefit on the back end to make it worth it. That's literally the two arguments that are being made together right now by the owners. And so it does present a really interesting problem about whether or not they can and should be, whether they should be invoking force majeure um, or whether they're using the pandemic to renegotiate and uh, a CBA agreement at, at the be- for the benefit to restructure essentially the way this, this league is run by renegotiating it, the CBA agreement um, and extending these another two, this another two years. So, I, I I think it really does put that into perspective. It, this is a very difficult argument for the owners, in my opinion, to be making. But when you talk to people around the league, they do say, look, we, we did experience significant losses. This is something that needs to be addressed. This isn't something that's sustainable. And, and you then have to remind yourself, but these owners are saying it is something that they can withstand, right? These owners are saying, sure, we can right. withstand this. We just want... A, a long-term benefit in order for you to, um, yeah, to be motivated. They just want something back this. in return, right? And so, you know, for me, the yeah. question becomes, you know, is this enough 
for the owners to actually lock out players, right? Like, are they willing to say, no, no, we, we need this 100 to $110 yeah. million dollars of savings the way they frame it. Um, and if we don't get it, we're going to, we're going to lock you guys out. Maybe they do. Maybe they do from March until May, um, which wouldn't really matter and would probably be up, you know, what a lot of people think is going to be the, the delay, uh, for the start of the season anyway. Um, but, you know, beyond that, ooh, it gets a little dicey. It gets a little dicey when you start doing that math. Yeah. That's the cost benefit analysis, right? Um, and that's something that people a lot smarter than the two of us are working on right now, I'm sure. Um, but no, it is interesting. And you mentioned sort of the start date, uh, and the league has been pretty insistent that they're looking to start in March. Uh, I think at this point that there's no chance. I'm pretty comfortable saying certainly not in early March, maybe late March. That's still on the table, but, um, early March seems completely unrealistic. I think at this point that stance is more of a negotiating tactic, right? Because it's pretty hard to threaten a lockout if the season isn't going to start until late April or May, right? And that time horizon is extended. You have to have that early March kind of end of the end of the rope um, to sort of create some urgency uh, at that table um, from the player side. Oh, I don't know if you guys heard Lyle. Uh, he's very passionate about CBA negotiations. He's the the world's foremost dog on labor talks. Um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but that start date's going to be interesting. The people that I've been speaking to at the club level have sort of reiterated to me this week that they haven't had any communication from the league about when that might be happening. Um, you know, if it was to start in the first weekend of March, preseason would be opening here in a couple of weeks. So that just kind of gives you an idea. Um, remains to be seen when it's going to begin. I don't think it's, I don't think it's going to start on time, certainly. And by the way, you mentioned preseason starting in a couple of weeks. Like coaches are saying, like, uh, is preseason starting in a couple of weeks or not? Like, it's very much not known. Yeah, no one knows. <laughs> no one knows. And so teams are like making like so. And the thing about preseason is like some teams, like if you're the Galaxy, right, or LAFC, and you're like, okay, preseason, you get a ten days notice on preseason. That's fine. You can just train at your own facility. No big deal, right? You just bring the guys in. No problem. If you're like Minnesota. Or like Montreal, um, you know, and some of these northern cold weather teams have indoor facilities that they can use, but not all of them do. And so if you don't have an indoor facility and you're in a place where it's four degrees outside with snow on the ground uh, in January and February, uh, planning the logistics and getting everything locked up uh, and ready to rock. And then you so you can press go just like when preseason might be happening. I do not envy the uh, team administrators in charge of that. I'll just I'll, to put it mildly, um, especially coming off of twenty twenty when their jobs were super difficult. Um, so yeah, that's that's a that's a hard job and probably will require a little bit of notice. So we should probably know ahead of time. And Sam, I was thinking, you know, the the CBA basically states that they the players have to be back a, um, a minimum of six weeks before the start of the season, right? That's that's the language in the CBA. Um, and so you think like, okay, once they've gotten to a certain point in the vacation, they're supposed to start preseason around January 21st. Let's say that gets delayed a little bit and then it remains unknown when they'll restart again. I think a lot of coaches were saying, oh, we'll just ask the players to come back and we'll be doing training while we wait to figure out because players aren't going to want to be, you know, sitting on their butts and not doing anything. And it doesn't make sense um, for you know, for the teams and the improvement of the players in the league and the, to, to not be doing anything. So, oh, we'll just bring them back into training and we'll just have training camp and a, a extended preseason while we figure out when we're going to play again. You put that now up against uh, labor negotiation. I don't think the players are going to be coming in to train uh, with a potential lockout hanging over their heads. So uh, just a lot of interesting things to watch going into this preseason start date whenever it, whenever it may be. No shortage of stories, for sure. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Um, speaking of news, by the way, we've had a couple of uh, coaching decisions this week. Um, the LA Galaxy made it official on Wednesday think i have my days correct it's my brain's a bit of a mess as usual um but they hired greg vanny uh vanny left toronto fc of course earlier this off season everyone sort of was like okay he's going to the galaxy and that's what he ended up doing uh paul what do you what do you think of this move what do you think of the hire uh, what do you think of the fit yeah i like the hire and i like the fit i think it's very hard to win in this league um and if you can hire somebody who has won an mls cup in, re- in the recent history of this league, who has put together a winning roster or been a part of putting together a winning roster in this league in recent history, um, who was the you know the coach of the best team uh, in the modern history of MLS in 2017 Toronto, um, arguably the best team. You know, you got to do it. And the fact that he has a history with the LA Galaxy as a player is a, a huge bonus. But I think. Um, what you're really hiring is the culture and the methods of Toronto, right? You're bringing that into your front office for a team that very badly needs to build a, a culture and, and in addition to building a roster. So um, I think Greg Vanny will help in both of those areas uh, for a team that really, really badly needs um, needs somebody to inject those ideas. And he said, he said right away in his press conference, the first thing we have to do is create a, a recognizable style of play and build off of that. And I think, you know, even just something that simple is, is an area where the galaxy have lacked. S- sounds simple. It's hard to pull off. Right. Uh, and the galaxy have lacked in that area for a number of years now, really since Bruce Arena left, I think it's fair to say. Um, he also talked about Chicharito was asked about Chicharito and just kind of like how they need to maximize him. He believes in Chicharito, or he says he does anyway, and how they need that style of play to kind of fit what he's really good at, which is making good runs in the box and finishing chances that he can get on the end of. Um, but a style of play kind of helps him in that way, right? Those those runs in the box, he can sort of predict which ones he needs to make if there's a real style and discernible style. Um, it would also help him if Christian Pavone comes back. That's still up in the air with Boca Juniors. They're in some sort of negotiation, it seems like. So we'll see how that ends. They're not going to pay the full release clause of what was it, Paul? Like twenty million, twenty-five million. Yeah, twenty million dollars. Yeah, they're they're not paying that. That's for damn sure. But um, I like you. I really do like the fit. Um, I think it's a good move for all parties. I think it's what Vanny's looking for in terms of it being a big club, but one that he can also rebuild, um, kind of his own in his own image. And I think. It's exactly what the Galaxy need in terms of a guy who knows MLS like the back of his hand, uh, knows that club, um, and should be able to get this thing on track. One question for you. How long, or does Greg Vanny get the Galaxy back to where they were in the early part of the 2010s? And if so, how long does it take? I think yes. I think he does get them back Partly because he's going to have the resources that he needs. Um, we, we can look at the Galaxy and criticize them and have criticized them um, or criticized the league really for giving them freedom with the rules in very convenient times. But I think that's indicative of the fact that the Galaxy has always been pushing the league to grow and to change and to spend more and to be more aggressive. And, you know, that's the cult. That is the history of that club. And that is the, the present of the, of the club. That owner will spend um, and that's going to help. So I would say, you know, two years, two seasons to get back to challenging in the Western Conference. I think they're three, at least three seasons away. I would say three seasons away from being an MLS Cup contender. I shouldn't say it that way. You're always always an MLS Cup contender. Yeah, a supporter shield contender. A legitimate MLS Cup contender from day one, right? The the teams we talk about as the best in MLS. So two, two to three years to really be the galaxy that we're kind of used to of like, okay, at the expectation for this team is to be at least uh, a conference semifinalist or finalist um, 
you know, I'll put I'll put that window on it. I don't think it's like a five or six year build. I mean, nothing that doesn't exist. <laughs> that doesn't exist. Build. What are you talking about? How dare you? Actually? Do you pay attention? Cincinnati is a Do you five pay or six attention? year build. Yeah, they need ten to twelve transfer windows. <laughs> they need twenty four to forty six transfer windows to correct that roster, right? Um, yeah, I, I pretty much agree. Uh, I, I would say maybe shorten the timeline a little bit. Uh, you know, you look at what Caleb Porter and Columbus did in year two, right? And granted, better roster, I think that he inherited. Um, but the Galaxy have more money to spend and more more drawing power. Um, so I don't know. I think, I think the goal for Vanny this year should be probably top four in the West and make some noise in the playoffs. And I think the goal in year two needs to be contending at the top of the league and, and running for cut. So, uh, we'll see how it goes. I do like the hire. Um, but as one new coach comes in, an old coach leaves, uh, Diego Alonso, uh, after one season with inter Miami, is officially out as head coach. Um, obviously, it was a disappointing year. Um, there was some weird shenanigans that we were in the middle of, uh, what, like a month ago now, um, where he thought he was fired. We reported that he was fired. Turns out he wasn't yet fired, um, even though he thought he was fired and was telling people he was fired. Uh, now he is fired, so everyone's on the same page uh, uh, at this point. Not so, so that's fast, good. Sam. This is the second time Diego Lonzo has been not fired in the last couple months. Last month he was parted ways. Last month he Are was not fired, ways? and this month he mutually parted ways. It was not. All right, you know, so he was fired. He was not fired. He was fired, and he got a buyout. That's what that means. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're just cutting through the nonsense here on the show. He was fired, um, so he's gone. Uh, Phil Neville might be coming in from the England women's national team as head coach. Those. Those are the reports, I think, um, from from The Athletic got on that report train. Um, not first, but uh, our colleagues over in the UK, um, you know, so there's there's substance to that. He goes way back with, with David Beckham, of course, and Miami is now looking for a new head coach, a new sporting director, and a new chief business officer. Uh, so year one, um, they are making like 2017 Orlando City look like the 20... 20- 13 san antonio spurs this is such a mess like i can't believe how bad it is like how ridiculously uh i think inept year one went and how just like blowing it up completely and i don't know like what are they gonna do are neville and beckham just gonna sign like a bunch of like league one and championship guys for like 800 to a million bucks a year like where is this going i don't get it why are they bad yeah, I mean it's very it's very interesting. I, again, I mean I don't think that you have to go much beyond the surface level to see that that Beckham is, is is grabbing more control of this club. You look at some of the signings that happened late in the year, guys that you know uh, relationships that he had with Juventus helped. Uh, I, we are to assume helped to bring in a guy like Blaise Matuidi for targeted allocation money. Then Iguain, uh came in. Um, certainly both of those players are a vast departure from the first round of signings, which were young DP and TAM level players, neither of whom worked out or, or certainly didn't work out in their first season. Um, but I think the strategy shifted. Um, and now, obviously, the strategy shift translated into a front office shift. Um, Paul McDonough being out, the head coach being out, Diego Alonso, and David Beckham, if Phil Neville's hired... You know, or the fact that Phil Neville is in discussions with Inter Miami is a pretty good indication of the person who's making the decisions in the sporting department right now. And so, you know, what are you discounting? Are you discounting the long relationship between Jorge Moss and Phil Neville here? Yeah, I, I absolutely am discounting that that very long, <laughs> documented relationship of their years in the academy at Manchester United together, and uh, on and on and on. But I think. Um, I think you're right. I think what will be most interesting is that we have seen it kind of devolve into this mess. And I'm interested to see where it goes from here. You know, do they go with a more European direction, right? Whereas in the first year, it seemed like they were going with more of a South American direction. Um, We've seen teams who undervalue the talent in MLS and and underrate the the talent of the league, the, the difficulty of the league. Colorado Rapids and Anthony Hudson probably being the best example of that um, and signing multiple championship players who 
um, you know, contributed to one of the worst teams in MLS history. We saw it in San Jose um, when Jesse Fiorinelli was first hired and he went and signed players who were well below the level of Major League Soccer and the struggle that happened there. So when GMs or sporting directors tend to rate MLS lower than the leagues with which they're familiar, there are problems there. Now, the flip side of that is Colorado and San Jose, you know, didn't have a ton of money to work with. Miami does. So um, if it's going to be more Iguains and Matuidis, maybe the problem is the age of the group. If it's going to be high-level big-name players, we'll see what age they are and where they are in their career. If it's going to be Phil Neville bringing over players he knows from England, you know, it'll depend if they're Premier League players or Championship players. And then we'll see. But I, I'm very intrigued just overall to find out where this is going. Yeah, I think it'll depend more if it's championship or league one, right? Championship guys come here and do well. Johnny Russell, good example of that career, mostly championship player who's been really good in MLS. Uh, League one's a little bit more hit and miss, as you might expect. Um, I'll ask you the same question that I asked about about Vanny in LA and understanding there are more unknowns here, but, I mean, do do we think Miami is going to be a contender a la Atlanta and LAFC early in their expansion processes in 2021 or even 2022, just given the current trajectory that they're on? No, but you have to wait and see who, who they hire as the coach. If it's Phil Neville, I, I don't think that's the right, I don't think it's a great direction. And I think, um, I basically, what I think is that they could, they could still be NYCFC. But it's about what they do next, these next couple steps. Um, NYCFC made a, a major coaching change, a change in philosophy, um, you know, after year one and into two and three when contracts started to come up. Um, and Patrick Vieira was hired and he did a fantastic job in kind of overseeing that transition. Um, Miami's making the same type of major changes, but it feels a little bit more Orlando and a little bit less NYCFC. And so right now, I think that they're on a Orlando City trajectory where we're talking about them in four and five years as, you know, what Orlando and Toronto FC were before them. Um, I don't know, Sam, do you see it differently? No, not really. Um, you know, I think, like you said, we do have to wait and see who the coach is. But if I had to guess what path Miami is headed down, it's not a good one. Um, I don't expect them to be anywhere near what the initial expectations were for a while. Uh, maybe they'll be, maybe they'll prove me wrong. Um, you know, I, I kind of hope they do. I think that could be a really cool market if they do it right. And, you know, obviously the fans weren't able to enjoy it this year. So what if they sign Messi? Messi has said he wants to come to MLS. He said it in an interview on the record. <laughs> if they sign Messi in two years, okay, in two years, so 2022, yeah, then it would be all right. What do you think? Do they win right away <laughs> if they sign Messi? Yeah. Messi would score 7 million goals if they signed him. <laughs> I think that would be okay. They could put you or me in goal or on the, at center back and they would win games. I'm excited to see Phil Neville coaching Messi. I'm excited to see Phil Neville coaching Leandro Gonzalez Perez. <laughs> <laughs> if he gets hired, we'll see. I think that's the expectation. Um, moving on <laughs> past expectations and into concrete official things, Mark McKenzie of the Philadelphia Union. Well, he's no longer of the Philadelphia Union. Uh, he was sold officially this week to Belgian club Gank, or I'm probably butchering that pronunciation, I apologize, uh, for five-plus million dollars. I believe it's the third biggest fee in, in Gank's history um, that they've ever paid for a player. Um, kind of indicative of, of where MLS seems to be heading in terms of perception in EuroLeagues. Um, and, you know, I was talking to somebody about this the other day, a scout and you know he mentioned to me like it this buy makes sense for a club like that even at that price just because you re you really know what you're getting with mckenzie it's a high floor maybe middle kind of ceiling player who you might be able to move on for a profit at some point still a young center back uh and he joins brendan aronson in moving from philadelphia over to europe this winter paul any thoughts on on that transfer and 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 kind of what it means for Philly, what it means for MLS. Yeah, I mean, I think this is an incredibly exciting time if you're a follower of MLS, if you're involved in MLS, because what we're seeing is 
the perception around the league starting to change internationally. There is now a belief that you can go and find good young players in Major League Soccer for decent prices, and even for expensive prices. Um, because of the success of American players in the Champions League and with championship Champions League level teams, you know there is now a belief: hey, we should go and we should go and take advantage of that. And um, and there are more MLS teams who are playing younger players, right? So all of that comes together um, into a, a place where teams like Philadelphia and FC Dallas, who have been committed to developing and playing homegrowns, are starting to capitalize on that. Brian Reynolds being connected with clubs like Juventus and Roma for $10 million after half a season in this league is in, is really crazy. It's crazy. And and yet, for me, it's it's incredibly exciting. And I think, you know, to even add another layer on top of this, you know, I've kind of, Sam, you and I have been talking a lot about, I don't want to say working on a story because it's really working on multiple stories about the um, – evolution of the transfer market in this country but even the new rules after brexit benefit major league soccer in the sense of that these points should be easier to gain for american players who are in the national team pool um and and you know thus can potentially sign in england and as english teams go more and more toward the manchester city route and buy clubs in belgium and other countries so that they can still have somewhere to to buy young prospects from the continent American players are going to benefit from that too. So, um, man, I just think, I just think this is like a potentially transformational time in the history of the sport in this country. And we already knew that, right, Sam? But I, I mean, I think the transfer market is now showing that in addition to the Christian Pulisic's, Weston McKinney, Sergio Dest's, um, Gio Reyna's of, of the kind of high end profile national team stuff. Yeah, and I think we talked a little bit about this on the last show, but without those guys that you just mentioned, with the exception of Dest, I guess, um, but without those guys that grew up in the States or grew up in Canada, in the case of Alfonso Davies and Jonathan David, who are having success in Europe, even if they never played a second in MLS, even if they were, even if they left the league for free. Um, Kyle Aaron, you know, it's leading just, scorer in Turkey right now. Yeah, there you go. So it's it's just, it's a point where these European clubs they can look at that player and say, that's a data point that we can benchmark against, right? So if Juventus is looking at Brian Reynolds, well, they can just, you know, look on their own lo- in their own locker room, out on their own training field and out in their own games and say, oh, Weston McKennie came from that same academy, right? So they can have a little bit more security in what they're buying. Um, I still think that's a crazy fee for somebody, um, you know, who has the the level of experience that Reynolds does or the lack of experience that, that Reynolds does. Um, but it could be something that's transformational. There is some risk involved, though, from an MLS perspective for a deal like that, right? Um, and this is something that got pointed out to me by that same scout the other day. And it's if he goes for $10 million to one of these big clubs in Italy, right, and he bombs, right, well, then it could have a, a negative effect on on future transfers uh, from MLS to Europe. Um, so I think it's important for us as like we talk about this stuff to not get, I guess, overwhelmed by potential trends and look at these as, as like, you know, individual case-by-case things that are affected by a broader market, um, but, you know, aren't necessarily like, like th- there, there are individual unique characteristics to all of them that are in play as well. I mean, the hope, right, is that these individual data points start to trend, right? And there may be points that fall off of that general line on the negative right. side. There may be points like Gio Reyna that go way above on the positive side or Alfonso Davies. Um, or Pulisic. You know, yeah. but but you, you hope that that line just continues to trend, that enough of the data points show this yeah. is valuable. This is there's value here. There's value here. There's value here. You know, and even somebody like Alfonso Davies, I remember having a conversation with, um, you know, somebody in in on the European side of things in regards to Alfonso Davies and his valuation in the European market, who said Bayern Munich was crazy to spend that much money. Yeah, that, that was way above what Alfonso Davies was worth, and that that the fact that Bayern spent that was just nuts. And now, and most people didn't think most people didn't think he would play for Bayern. Right, I was one of those people. Like before he got moved to left back, most people didn't think he was going to play on that team. Yeah, I mean, same same with Zach Steffen, right? Who 
you know, a lot of people said he will never play for Manchester City. And, you know, he very quickly became the number two at Man City and now has taken advantage of, you know, unfortunately, a a COVID positive um, situation with Ederson and stepped into the lineup. He's played League Cup games. He's played Champions League games. And, you know, if he continues to perform, he's still I'm just saying as an example, he's of course, he's a backup, but the value can be there for Manchester City, right? To them, $10 million, first of all, is nothing. And second of all, if Zach Steffen performs well for one season in that role and gets 15 games, you know, he has more value on the transfer market than what they paid for him at Columbus. Right? Was it even $10 million? I can't It was remember. $10 million. It was like seven it was, and a half. It was eight and a half million that could, seven and a half that could rise as high as $10 million, depending on bonus, bonuses that were hit. Um, but, the point being just that that those opportunities are are those data points are there. Players are outperforming them already. Expectations. There may be some people mm-hmm. who perform under, but in general, I think we can say with some pretty good confidence that the perception of this league and the academies in this country is changing into action, actionable consequences. Right? Teams are putting more resources yeah. into scouting this country putting more resources into um, beyond scouting to actually putting offers in for players. Um, I, I, I can say three years ago, Mark McKenzie probably does not go for as much money as he did this year. I, I don't think that, no. I don't think that's any question. Right. No and maybe the Red Bulls were right. I, I gave them hell for valuing. I think they, what did they put like a $10 million valuation on Aaron Long? Yeah, something like that. Ten or fifteen. Maybe they were. Maybe they were right. At fifteen, they weren't right. But ten, maybe they were right. Aaron Long, much older at that time than any of these players that we're talking about, which affects the market. Um, but yeah, maybe. Um, Aaron Long also hasn't been that good since all of that happened, <laughs> or as good as he was before since all of that happened. Um, but anyway, I think we can press pause really quick. We're gonna talk back. Come back. We're gonna talk about. Some of the moves, the player moves that have happened around MLS, and and Paul wants to say something um, regarding what he said last show about Austin FC. Anyway, we'll be back after the break. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show, reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, It's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with. And unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, we are back, and I thought I would kind of start off this last segment going back, uh, like you said, Sam, to something I said in our last episode, the last episode of 2020, something that did pull me out of vacation mode and onto the pages of Reddit, which is something you always know means that that something good has happened, right? Um, basically, what I said last time was that I, I was uncomfortable with the um, the Spanglish marketing uh, scheme or, or design of Austin FC. You know, they say Verde, the Verde van, they say... Uh, all sorts of stuff. And I, I just felt that it wasn't genuine. Um, and look, I think, um, I, I, I had some conversations, um, with many different people. I listened to feedback from, um, from fans in Austin, um, who, who say they feel like it's a, a, a very good reflection or a, certainly a, um, a reflection of Austin's culture. And, um, I think most importantly that it's coming from a genuine place, which is what's most important that this isn't just a, um, a ploy to try to seem cooler or more street, um, that it's not pandering, um, but that Austin is making a genuine attempt to connect with the Hispanic community in the city um, to reflect the Hispanic or Latino community in Austin. Um, some people feel differently about the use of the word Hispanic or uh, versus Latino. Um, but certainly I think the most important thing is uh, – is that they are genuine in trying to be a part of the Latino community in Austin to hire Latinos into management positions, which they have done. Um, and so whatever way um, the ad campaign makes you feel uh, or makes me feel is one thing. But um, I should point out, and Sam, you wrote about this in your story, um, that they have um, shown through actions uh, a commitment to hiring Latinos um, as a part of uh, of the franchise and in um, consequential positions, and uh, and I, I hope that they continue to take a genuine approach to connecting with that community. And I, I will also say somebody did make a good point online that I I had to agree with, which is I would be equally critical, um, maybe more critical of Austin if they did nothing um, to incorporate. Uh, any type of Spanish or recognition of the Latino community in, in Austin. Um, and they're right. Um, I, I would have been. So um, I, I will say that I, I hope again that Austin continues to um, take that genuine approach to um, embrace the Latino community. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it. Hopefully no more um, Reddit threads about something I say on this, uh, on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, no, that was nice, Paul. Thank you for saying that. Uh, you know, I think we, we can both strive to always strive to kind of be reflective and accountable. It's never a bad thing to learn some more info and, you know, potentially change your mind or provide context, provide context being what you just did. So uh, I think that's valuable and a good lesson for everyone in 2021, a new year. Um, new year, we got some new teams for guys, too. We can start right in Austin. Matt Beasler. Obviously, he left Sporting Kansas City. We all knew that already. Uh, he ends up joining Austin. Um, I th- can't remember if we if Alex Ring um, was announced uh, at the time of our last recording or not. It was shortly thereafter, if not. Um, so that roster is coming together. A um, lot of MLS experience down there so far. Not a lot of big names, not a ton of money spent. They still have some DP spots. They still have some TAM. Um, so we'll see where they use that. Um, they do need to add to the attack, certainly in my opinion. Um, but I think they're forming a a pretty experienced core, which I think is really valuable for an expansion team. Um, I think Nashville showed that in, in spades last year. And I think it's fair to expect Austin to spend a little bit more money than Nashville did. Um, so I'm generally optimistic about what they're doing with that roster so far um, with the caveat that they really do need those big parts still um, to help them score some goals. So, uh, but any thoughts on, on what's going on with their roster? Yeah. I mean, I think you have to look at these moves and say, you hope that if you're Austin, you hope that Matt Beasler is your Michael Parkhurst or Jeff Laurentowitz for Atlanta United, you know, a a very well-respected, a locker room guy who's who's been on winning teams 
and you know can be kind of the the a strong presence on your back line um and i think you know we have to i think it's worth pointing out there have been like look at miami last year right robles aj de la garza will trap you know they also went out and tried to find some mls veterans to make up the core of their team um and those signings didn't work out as well as they had hoped um they would i think you know let's put AJ De La Garza to the side. Robles and Trapp were both expected to be core starters and were core starters for, for parts of the year. Um, so it's a, it's the, it's a good strategy, but it doesn't mean every time that the signing is going to work out. And so the hope has to be that, that they nailed this, um, especially this Beasler signing. Um, but to your point, Sam, I think the more important signings that they're going to make, the more important transactions are still to come. Um, they need to get those attacking pieces right. They need to get those DPs right. And uh, if that happens, um, then yeah, maybe maybe we can see another expansion team that's kind of that can kind of fall in that middle level of spending that has a bit of success in year one. For for whatever it's worth, Claudio Arena told me that he expected they would be top third in spending. Um, they would have to spend a lot of money on those other two DPs to get there, but maybe that's where they end up. Uh, they also added Diego Fagundes um, over the break uh, as a free agent signing. Uh, they did not add Joe Corona um, in a very MLS saga uh, move. They picked him in the expansion draft. Uh, he was, I believe, I don't know if he was out of contract or he had his option declined, um, but they picked him. They did not reach an agreement with him. Uh, re-entry rolled around. And he kept his name in the draft and got selected by Houston, um, who he did, I believe, reach an agreement with. So kind of a, you know, it has to be said, a wasted expansion draft pick by Austin. Um, And that's not great. Uh, So I don't know what happened there. If they, you know, you assume you you pick a guy, you you probably have a deal in the works. Um, Maybe they thought they had the rights in perpetuity. Um, Didn't work like that, though. So he, uh, he ends up moving across east to east Texas and landing in Houston. A couple of big moves in Columbus. Kevin Molino signing, leaving Minnesota to join the crew, and Bradley Ray Phillips leaving LAFC um, after one season out on the West Coast to join the black and gold. And not the other black and gold, the defending champs, kind of a, I mean, the crew were a bit of a surprise MLS Cup champ, I think it's fair to say. But, I mean, rich getting richer here, right? Yeah, I mean, I think you really have to like both of these moves if you're a Columbus fan. One, Kevin Molino is a really, really good player who you just signed for relatively cheap when you look on the international market to get a guy like Kevin Molino for $700,000 on a free transfer. Uh, or we assume, I mean, it's around $700,000 is, is the max that he could make in free agency. So yeah, about $700,000 on a free transfer. Pretty darn good signing. Um his production, by the way, is insane. Yeah. Like on a per minute level. He's dealt with a couple of ACL tears in his career, so he's missed a lot of chunks of time. But I was just looking at his stats yesterday, and the per minute numbers for both goals and assists are ridiculous for somebody who's not even a forward. It doesn't surprise me if only only because I'm, I guess, probably a little bit biased in that I was in Orlando to watch his USL MVP season in 2014 and then, um, you know, get to know him a little bit early in 2015 before that first ACL tear. And, I remember one of the first impressions I had of him was Kevin was Kaká telling me that he thought Kevin Molino could go play for AC Milan. Um, that's how highly Kaká rated Kevin Molino after a preseason of 2015. Um, and you know everyone kind of remembers the moment where Kaká scored the goal after Molino's ACL injury and ran to the sideline and put on Kevin's jersey. Just very very um, highly respected. Um, and yeah, it's been really unfortunate that he had the two ACLs because I do think he has been capable of this level of play whenever he's healthy. Um, so really smart signing. And also BWP, we have to point out, you know, this is just planning from Columbus, right? This is an incredibly busy 2021 where there are going to be a ton of international soccer games. Jossie Zardes is a key part of Greg Berhalter's plans for the senior national team. They were going to need a striker who could play consistent minutes when Zardes is gone. And BWP is that guy. They don't need him to be the regular starter. They just need him to step into the lineup when Zardes is gone. It's a very, very smart move, I think. I think, first of all, I agree on on Red Phillips. I agree on what you said about Molino. But I would add that that dynamic that you just talked about with BWP is in play with Molino as well, right? Because you think about the wingers that they have in Columbus. You have Pedro Santos, 
right? You have Luis Diaz and you have Derek Etienne. Um, Etienne and Diaz could both miss significant time with international duty with, with Haiti and Costa Rica, respectively, this year, in theory. Um, Molino could as well with Trinidad, potentially. Um, but Molino, historically, because of his injury history, he's not really a guy you want to have to count on to start every single game. They don't have to, right? And it's good cover. Um, Caleb Porter likes to play with one fast winger who can stretch the field and another one who can come inside. Um, Molino is, is more in that second mold along with Pedro Santos. Um, and, you know, both of those guys can play inside too. So if Zellerion misses time, which he did this year, um, you know, they have two really capable options in that spot as well. So I just really like kind of the options that they have. It's going to be some tough decisions on the 11 for Porter, but those are the kind of good problems that coaches love having. Um, so solid roster building, smart, um, kind of lower cost, but really... I think should be really effective moves. Uh, I do want to ask, I was surprised Molino, Minnesota let, let him go or let him out of their grasp. What do you, what do you make of that? Um, I've got to try to think about what I know on the record and what I don't know on the, um, so look, I think the, here's the thing with MLS free agencies, there are still limits on how much money players can make if they leave their teams. Um, so Kevin Molino had a cap in what he could make outside of Minnesota. He didn't have a cap on what he could make in Minnesota. Um, as long as they made that offer before the day of re-entry draft phase two. And Adrian Heath went on the record and said that they offered him the max that he could make in America, which is not or in MLS, true. So. Right. So, you know, what that is is a, well, a the, sort of the a max, manipulation. The max he could make. So basically what what we're what we see here is that they offered him what he could make elsewhere. And essentially, uh, maybe a little bit more, I would guess, than what he would be offered in Columbus or another team. And Kevin Molino thought, I, I deserve more than that. If you guys can offer me infinite you know, infinity infinity, excuse me, above um <laughs> Man, I'm falling apart Infinity here. and beyond. Um, above what anyone else can make, and you make me the minimum offer above what everyone else can make, then maybe you don't rate me as highly as you should, considering my production. And maybe that means I'm going to go somewhere else. And that's essentially what it seems happened, um, is that Minnesota made him an offer that they felt was competitive with what he could get anywhere else in Major League Soccer, and that, you know, he would stay um, to take that, that you know, that maximum or slight maximum above what anyone else could pay him and instead he said no i'll take slightly less to go to a team that that's making me an offer of what is actually the most that they can offer me yeah i think it's a shame if you're a minnesota fan because you saw what molino and reynoso could do in the playoffs together those guys were cooking on a unreal level there for a couple of games um and now that partnership is broken up uh so interesting to see what the loons do to potentially replace him other moves that are happening around around the league, New England made a couple of signings. AJ De La Garza, Ima Boateng, both reuniting. A couple of old Galaxy boys reuniting with Bruce up in Boston. And then I think kind of the big non-player outstanding item is that here we are recording on Thursday, January 7th. Tomorrow, Friday, January 8th, MLS will take over the sale process of Real Salt Lake from Deloitte Hansen, um, unless some deal gets worked out. Uh, by Deloitte and a potential buyer at the 11th hour. Um, so that, you know, I expect that'll change the dynamic of everything going on with that sale and how many parties are, are in and involved. Um, so we'll see. We'll see where that goes. Um, Ryan Smith, you know, billionaire Utah who just bought the Jazz, he went on Adrian Wojnarowski's podcast the other day and mentioned that, you know, he approached the Miller family, the previous owners of the Jazz, to say, hey, do you want to go in on RSL with me? They said no. He said, well, what if we teamed it up with the with the Jazz and RSL? And they were like, if we're selling part of the Jazz, we're going to sell the whole deal. And he was like, that's an option? And then this is kind of an amazing story, actually. I'll just tell it in full. And they said, yeah. And he pulled up the Forbes valuation on his phone of the Jazz and said, here's my, looked at it, said, here's my offer. And that was that. That was how he bought the Utah Jazz, which is crazy. Um you know, I reported, I think with Chris Camrani uh, a month or two ago, that he was interested after buying the Jazz. He was still interested in RSL, but that was a month or two ago. I don't know if that's still true or not. Um, 
So we'll see. We'll see where it goes. Um, but definitely a lot of uncertainty and a lot of things to work out in Salt Lake as they head into the new year. Uh, Paul, anything else you wanna you wanna cover? Did we did we touch all the bases? Anything else we uh, we, we got hit on? I think so. I think we should end this first episode of 2021 before anything else bad happens. <laughs> bad things are always happening. Listen to Allocation Disorder. Eat at Arby's. Arby's.